Velkommen til episode number 20 of Metaverse Cast. Always nice to hit one of those round numbers. And in this episode, I'm celebrating it with an interview with Professor Bob Stone from University of Birmingham. I got to chat with Bob because of a thing on LinkedIn where somebody showed a haptic feedback system and Bob, he commented and I found out, okay, here's a guy who knows a ton about this virtual reality and everything that's been in development over the years. Bob has worked with virtual reality for more than 35 years and it was it's super interesting to hear his take on everything that's been created And we also have a little bonus conversation in between about actually creating things for humans. And another bonus is that Bob, he was so kind to share a lot of useful links that I've put in the show notes. There's both like some YouTube videos from some of the case studies he mentions. There's links to some guides there's links to some articles and stuff like that and it's it's super awesome so don't forget to check that out and now without further ado let's just listen to what bob had to say hello bob thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me hi jasper yes great pleasure it's uh, always like uh, doing podcasts and video webinars with fellow enthusiasts so I, i i i get the impression you're one of those i have really been looking forward to uh, the conversation today because we had a little email correspondence and uh, I was of one opinion and you say you are of another. So that's kind of like what we're going to dive into today. Uh, but first, uh, tell people a little bit about like who you are. Sure. Well, I'm an emeritus professor in extended realities and human-centered design at the University of Birmingham. That's a very long title, uh, but essentially, I've been uh, in the virtual reality sector since 1987, following a, a, an amazing experience at NASA Ames in California. Uh, but the great thing about that experience was it, it really appealed to my background in my education in human factors or ergonomics, because the guys over at NASA were looking not so much at the tech but what can they do with the tech and what could the human do with the tech? So that's uh, that was 1987. <clears throat> and since then, uh, I've been involved in, in a wide variety of initiatives from um, the UK's National Robotics Centre, where we launched the world's first uh, industrially funded, no government, no, uh, no funding from academia. It was uh, funded completely by industry, which is a, a, a try before you buy initiative in virtual reality for a range of, of, of industries. Um, that spawned a little company of which I was a director up until 19, uh, well, until 2003, when I then decided to live out my life quietly and become an academic, um, which hasn't happened, I hasten to say, it's, that's gone completely the other way. So I've got a small team, uh, we do crazy stuff with virtual reality in healthcare, in defense, education, uh, and also in testing new technologies, be they drones in the West Country, or new headsets or, or whatever it's it, we, we evaluate it but again from a human-centered perspective cool uh the reason we kind of find, found each other was because i saw somebody i'm i'm stupid with details you know <laughs> that's just how i am but i i found a post where somebody had done 
like this like ultrasound uh, haptic feedback system. And for people who don't really know what haptic feedback is, that means that you know you can actually you can, you can create devices that you can put on or you know some kind of technology you can use so that you can feel when you touch stuff in virtual reality. You know that that seems to be kind of one of the one of the goals for you know maybe you have another uh, definition but that's kind of what i think about because that's one of the things that we that we are you know one of the holy grails that we're trying to find at the moment right is that okay how can we actually like touch stuff in virtual reality and feel you know the different weights of things and, and things like that mm, um, and you you made a comment there and then i found out about you and your history and i was like wow okay that that's super cool you know i gotta get you on the podcast uh, because my idea or my feeling is that augmented reality if we consider augmented reality like what you can do in snapchat and my mobile phones look at virtual you know the reality through your the lens of your phone uh you know people might know stuff like uh, pokemon go which is like an yes. obvious example yeah. for for something like that but there are, there are many cooler examples but that's that's the thing that most people can relate to um and then the whole uh, like blockchain metaverse uh, thing in terms of this browser-based world or computer, like a laptop interface uh, world. I think those two things are closer to mainstream adoption than virtual reality because the real experience we want from virtual reality requires us to you know there's quite a, a threshold to put on gadgets of like suits or be in different rooms or you know all this kind of stuff it seems to be like a big technology barrier you know before we just like plug a you know put a plug in our neck and then you know we are fully immersed which is i think what most people are either fearing or dreaming of or you know whatever you want to say uh, and that's my feeling but but you you have another one so you know enlighten me yeah uh, you covered a lot of issues there from from haptics through to augmented reality and, and obviously this 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 thing this thing called the metaverse which everyone's getting very very excited about despite the fact that it doesn't exist and, and, and little examples have been evolving over the last what, 20 years i suppose <clears throat> but the uh, if, if we take augmented reality first yes when you look at snapchat when you look at pokemon go when you look at uh, for example, uh, being able to navigate through a city with basic information being displayed on your mobile phone or your tablet, then fine. Yeah, it's got merit. To me, uh, augmented reality should be much, much more than that. Or, and, and augmented reality should be much further ahead than it is today. So I'll give you an example. We've been experimenting with um, the HoloLens uh, and with uh, the, uh, the Dream Glass. Um, I tried the first edition of Magic Leap. I'm always totally unimpressed. And what we tend to do with those devices, the first thing we do with those, we put them on, put some of our uh, very complex virtual images, and I'll give you an example of that in a second, and we walk to the window. We look at the window into daylight, and it doesn't have to be bright daylight like, like we have today, uh, and everything gets washed out. Everything disappears. The glare, the, 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 uh, the veiling glare, as, as, as we call it in, in human factors, and, and, and the contrast and the reflections from other things in your immediate environment, completely destroy it and we know what it's like when we're with the mobile phone and we're out uh, you know we're trying to navigate using a map and, and a walking direction you can't see it you simply can't see it augmented reality to me 
and you keep on seeing augmented reality as being uh, as being pushed as being the interface to the metaverse. That's a long, long time in the coming, and and whether or not we want to put a headset on and find ourselves in a dystopian Blade Runner type environment um, is, is is a completely different question. We were hoping by 2020 that there would be a headset where we could take those headsets onto Plymouth Hoe. Plymouth Hoe historically is where Sir Francis Drake was playing bowls before he fought off the Spanish. Um, Plymouth Hoe is where the, the, Mayf the Mayflower uh, set sail in 1620. And I wanted those headsets to show people the Mayflower sailing across what is known as Plymouth Sand. Totally, well, there was nothing, totally useless. We tried the dream glass with the Mayflower and a lovely model of the ship, which then we, we were building for virtual reality in which it performed and was represented beautifully. We tried that and it was like looking at a very poor special effect of the Marie Celeste. You, you, is it there? Is, you, no, no, it's not. You can just make out some of the flags maybe. Augmented reality to become mainstream, and have impact on the general public, have impact on education, have impact on, on, on engineering, and specifically have impact in the operating theatre, where there are a lot of people experimenting with HoloLens and other type uh, AR wearable devices, uh, to the risk of the patient, because we're not seeing very much evidence coming out that it really, really does help you perform operations effectively and safely. Augmented reality, in my opinion, has got an awful long way to go. Uh, but yeah, Pokemon Go, Snapchat, all that kind of thing, great. Putting it on and, and, and seeing virtual characters from history, virtual objects, virtual scenes superimposed over present day, present day scenes. We are, we are years away from that. And I don't care what, what, what HoloLens say, and I don't care what, what Magic Leap brings out with their, their, uh, their, their, the Magic Leap 2. Nothing I can see at the moment would, would give me confidence to buy a virtual, uh, an augmented reality headset. So that's AR. I mean, we can come on to haptics and because haptics is something I, I feel very strongly about. But yeah, that's yeah. why I think having spent most of my life in VR and looking at the toolkits and the applications and the impact studies uh, and the level of quality you can achieve. OK, you know, we're, st we're still not there with haptics. Nowhere near there with haptics. Um, I mean, I actually believe that that smell will probably come to the fore long before haptics does. But VR is, is, is actually mature and it's being adopted. It's being adopted in industry and it's, it's, it's producing returns on investment. It's producing much better qualified, efficient, safe performance in humans. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can follow you with, the, with these. Uh, and, and, and that would be uh, really cool. I live very close to uh, in my area, we have a lot of like Viking burial grounds, and uh, I live uh, right next to a fjord where they know how you know they used to sink ships, so that it was kind of like a labyrinth to sail through the fjord. So the foreigners, they foreign ships, they would crash, and they could just like shoot them from from the sides, uh, and that whole thing, you know, like looking at the fjord and, and being able to see that, I can, you know, that would be amazing. But I can also imagine, as you say, that with the current technology. That would be virtually impossible, and you would better get a much better feeling for that in a VR uh, setting. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting you should mention that application because we were approached a few years ago, and sadly, very sadly, we had to turn the people away. There was somebody. There was somebody in Norway. There's a, there's the the, the, the Turpit, Is it the Turpit Museum in Norway? Where the, I mean, the Turpits were sunk by 
um, I think by some of the ex-craft that came over from, from UK. And they said, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could see the perfect in, on the surface in this fjord? And, that, and you've touched upon, you know, that's one of my biggest passions is using virtual reality and hopefully one day augmented reality to make the invisible visible. You know, we, we, we've, we've, uh, we've recreated uh, submarine wrecks historical events, um, you know, the, the UK's first ever underwater habitat. We, we were, were constantly on in, in historical places on Dartmoor, 3D scanning, 3D mapping. Uh, and, I, and I think that that kind of what, what I call virtual heritage and it's linked with education is incredibly powerful. So, yeah, and, and that's super interesting. I, I think I, I saw uh, one of the great things I saw was it was, uh, I think it was National Geographic. They had a thing with David Attenborough in VR that looked through the, you know, the, what is it like the involvement uh, of single cell to multiple cell organisms under the water and all that kind of stuff. And since that's not something I have personally experienced and have, you know, no frame of real reference, it was very believable. You know, obviously, I could see the computer graphics and stuff like that. But if you compare it to, you know, when when you when you have these like things where people try to make grass and, and things like that, where where it's it, it they're trying to make it too real and it kind of breaks the illusion. In, instead of yes. you know, I always compare it to World of Warcraft, where they went in the obvious uh, opposite direction, and then created a totally believable universe because you have no other references and you just felt like you were there and that natural geographic thing felt just like that so i can imagine that vr experiences in history you know obviously you know if you are in a field you still have references for today but but that would be amazing you know ships and and stuff like that that would be uh, super is there anything like that other than you know what national geographic are doing well, apart from the work that we do, there are there are a lot of groups out there looking into this, this thing, this virtual heritage, and, and, and recreating shipwrecks. Uh, there was also I can't remember if it was National Geographic, but there's also I don't know if you ever saw it, a TV program where they they lowered they, they lowered the level of the water uh, of the uh, the English Channel, and so you could see all the Spitfires, all all the ships and submarines and planes that went down. That was awesome. That yeah. was absolutely truly awesome. But when we, we do that kind of thing. On a smaller scale, uh, and you know, for, I mean, one one great project I was involved with with the team literally about a, a year or two ago, where we we had an autonomous vessel sailing over a reservoir in the West Country, and the sonar once we'd converted it into virtual reality, and we did that because we can alter the lighting and we can we can then interpret what's down there by moving the shadowing and moving the lighting. We actually came across some very strange smooth artifacts, and we had no idea what these were, and so we presented this. And this dear old lady uh, called Mavis sent me afterwards a, fo a photograph from the 1940s where you could see across the reservoir there was these little blips, and they corresponded to where I, where, where the the vessel had shown us these. So we did a bit of research, sent one of our little remotely operated subs. We got little tiny subs that are quite quite agile, and sure enough, it was a World War II, a really complex World War II torpedo net. Nobody knew it was there. They'd forgotten about it. And it, it, it's the same with the, the habitat, the underwater house project, where this guy, this, this British guy, spent £1,000 of his own money back in 1965 and, and built and stayed for a week underwater. Now, that habitat is still there. 
it's a huge part of British maritime history, but it's been left. It's collapsed, it's rusting, and people did not know it was there. So this, this idea of making the invisible visible, uh, and then also using that with school kids, it's like, like we did with the virtual Mayflower project, which we delivered in 2020, uh, but actually getting them to realize that there's so much more on their doorstep than they, are, they were, could ever be made aware of. It's so powerful. Yeah, I can see that. And obviously the next step would be haptics. So before I, you know, make a fool of myself and uh, and explain what I think it is, you know, I would rather to, you know, what is haptics to you? Right. Um, haptics to me is, it's, it's actually a, a quite complicated human um, sensory motor process. Uh, people think haptics is, is, is just about being able to deliver the sense of force and torque to the human body. That's correct. Um, but, they tend to, they, but they tend to forget the role of vision, the role of cognition, the way which the brain processes information about the, how, it, how the limbs are prepared to reach and how the postures change to make a touch and what happens if you pick something up which you thought was heavy but turns out not to be heavy. How do you, how do you alter your, 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 your touch uh, and your behaviour in doing that? But yes, at its basic level, haptics is about delivering an additional sense of touch or force to the human to complement what the human is seeing in virtual reality. Um, and I, one of my, my claims to infamous, inf infamousity or, uh, is I invented the world's first tactile feedback glove back in 1990 uh, called Teletact, which was, when I look at it, I still have it at home in a frame. When you look at it, um, and you look at what's out there today, things haven't changed at all. I mean, I, I, we, we were using small, um, what we call well, tactors or little inflatable pockets, air, air pockets. Uh, Teletac 1 had about 12, Teletac 2 had about 24. And the idea was that when the virtual reality system sensed that you were about to make contact with an object, it would then inflate the requisite number of, of air pockets. Well, it didn't work. And it didn't work for exactly the same reasons as a lot of the very expensive and, dare I say, unreliable haptic feedback systems that we see online don't work today. Uh, simply because it's not just about tickling or pressing or restricting the movement of your, your digits. It's much, much more than that. Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I, actually, I actually believe that forget wearables. You mentioned this earlier on in the discussion. Forget wearables. I don't think we're going to see a, a credible or experience a credible haptic feedback system until we've got some form of direct um, brain computer interface. I really genuinely believe that until we control the muscle spindles and the nerves, because the complex nerves and the spindles and the, and the tendons, until we can control those directly, you can forget wearables, just, just don't even bother. And that's one of the reasons why in one of our major projects, which is uh, defense, uh, defense medical training, um, we, we don't use haptics. We use pass-through virtual reality headsets, similar to the Vario XR3, but not as, not as expensive. It's a modified HTC Vive Pro. But you can see your own hand and you can see what you're touching. And the, the degree of presence that that adds to the virtual, being inside a virtual Chinook helicopter, is huge, absolutely huge. Whereas if we put gloves, if we put any of the existing 
fingertip-based or glove-based um, systems, never mind the ultrasonic mid-air haptics, as it's called. But if we put gloves on, by putting those gloves on, we would be introducing an interface artifact that would actually change the human's behavior because it's so cumbersome. I mean, you've seen these things, they're huge. Uh, and, and what they end up doing is making you move slowly, you, you're, you're, you're fiddling around trying to grasp an object. Every so often you will get a, a little kick. Um, that's not the performance we want to instill. We want you to be able to reach out, touch that casualty and get on with the work, not have to concentrate on battling with the technology. Yeah, I have a background in, uh, in uh, interface design. And one of the examples we always use when we have to explain the value of interface design is that when, when, you, when you, in reality, have a room, like a meeting room, and in the center of the table is a bottle, and then you move the bottle to the edge of the table, you leave the room and come back, and then you expect the bottle to be in the same place. Default computer operating systems have moved the bottles back into the center of the table. <laughs> so, so that's that's like you know you, you know and that as you just say changes behavior, which is is not really what we're going for when we are trying to solve a problem in in, in whatever situation. We're we're not trying to create new problems. We're trying to actually make the the situation easier, and I can totally see that. And that's also why. I, and I'm glad you're saying that because I didn't, I, I couldn't see it happening, you know, with gloves and suits and all that kind of stuff. I just not did not imagine that, okay, that it's always going to, maybe it's going to be something that, okay, that can be fun because it's like a gaming experience and you do something specific with some whatever gadget, but that yes. real feeling you're talking about, you know, and, and uh, I agree. Uh, so, so what do you think about, you know, how far are they with this? Because for me, that sounds totally far out with this whole like real link to nerves and, and things like that. Well, yeah, there are experiments. There are experiments going on. Occasionally, you'll see reference to, to brain computer interfaces, physiological interfaces that apply to not, not so much the brain, but different parts of, of, of the skin uh, or, or, the, or, or the limbs. Uh, yeah, you're, I think you're right. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're, I hate to use the word holodeck because too many people overuse that word when they when they come up with something new in VR. They've always they've always produced something that that is the holodeck, and that's complete rubbish. But we are we are I believe many many years, if not decades, away from de developing a credible synthetic sense of touch and force, or the one that where you can you can reach out. You see these you see these fantastic pictures online of people reaching out and holding a steering wheel. Well, that's complete rubbish. Uh, you know, because if I hold the steering wheel whilst I'm driving, occasionally I use that steering wheel to relax and I rely on the weight of the steering wheel to support my hands. And there are tons of other examples where, where haptic speeds there. Even in robotics, you know, we've, we, we saw um, Bezos uh, using two uh, of the uh, the haptex gloves with uh, a bi-arm robot over in one of the events uh, in Vegas, somewhere over there. Um, and you just watch, you watch what he and the other people are doing. They, they, the, the technology he's wearing and the technology he's presented with is, is, is determining his behavior. He's not controlling, he's not the master controlling the slave. It's the slave controlling the master. And you can see this as, as he reaches out and, and, I, and I need to look around and I'm not further from the object than I would be if I was doing this in real life. It, you're completely right. And being a UI person or a UX person, you, I mean, you'll know the work of Don, Don Norman. 
Uh, I, I used, uh, yeah, I mean, Don Norman, I used Don Norman's um, model of how we process the, the information and what happens when you introduce a barrier and the gulf of execution, the gulf of, eva of evaluation. Perfect. That describes perfectly today the issues with virtual reality. You, you introduce a barrier, it doesn't make, make any difference whether it's the real world or the virtual world. You influence the way you perceive that world, you process that world, and you interact on that world, and it becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. Uh, so it's very, so, so yeah, haptics, I think. I'll sit back and I'll, I'll watch what I'll, I'll, you know, I'm quite happy to be proven wrong. I mean, was it two days ago, three days ago? There was something in the, in the, in the um, new scientist about University of Chicago experimenting with chemical haptics. Did you see that? No. So they're, yeah. oh, so they're actually now, they've got these micro pumps which deposit different kinds of chemicals uh, onto the skin, anywhere on the body, things like menthol. Um, and the idea is that these things will seep into the skin or, or will be pressured into the skin and they will give you a sense of heat, tingling, uh, all the kind of all the kind of so-called haptic sensations that are totally useless for engineers or totally useless for people wanting to use this stuff in the real world. So yeah, so so you've made my finger tingle. Wow, that's that's great. <laughs> it's an acad academic academic play thing, but yeah. So and as well, if you as for mid-air haptics. Well, you, you, saw, you saw what I said. Um, <clears throat> the team and I experienced the mid -air, I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but we experienced the mid-air haptic system uh, not that long, well, three years ago, maybe. And uh, the, we were invited to try it out because the company concern was, was, was offering a, uh, an academic package, a significant discount, which is not unusual because companies like to bring in academics because they think they can get the, the research for free or cheap. That's been the story of academics for decades and we tried it out in a number of so-called applications from um trying to alter the radio in a in a car to a vending machine to something else and i i, I just i just no no i got there's no way we're going to purchase this there's no yeah you know, what well, you have to sort of play on around with your hand before you find that you find something that feels like it's vibrating columns of air then you have to try and move your hand to, to, to get some degree of sense of what it is, it didn't work. And then you have to manipulate it, which didn't work. Uh, so again, it was a technology slaving me to just by behavior to make the damn thing work. Yeah. So we, we didn't bother. So just so that people who, who don't know what mid-air haptics, what is it actually it is and what is it that they claim it can do? Well, mid-air haptics, is, it's a recent term that's been applied to uh, a unit that uh, basically uses different sensors to vibrate columns of air above the above the surface of the unit, and these these vibrating columns of air can be altered, allegedly to create shape or form. Um, so the idea is that in its normal state, you you will just feel like columns of air hitting your hand, but then you can adjust the columns of air so you can feel a sphere, or you can feel a block, um, but it doesn't work. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could be. I wish I could be polite about it, but it, it, it just doesn't work. And they're talking about putting these things into automobiles. Well, that's that, that's going to end up being more distractive than than, than, than being on a mobile phone. You know, I, I, I want to I change the channel. I want to change the channel. Reach out. I want to, I want to change to Radio One on BBC or whatever. And you're trying. You're trying desperately to search for this stimulus. Yeah. In which by, by which time you've crashed. It, it, uh, yeah, it's 
yeah, you mentioned normal, and Argwood is uh, uh, what Alan Cooper uh, inmates are running the asylum. That's one of my favorite books on on this like human computer interaction, uh, where there's a lot of examples. You know, there's examples of planes that crashed into uh, like cliffs because of information was provided uh, provided in a wrong way on screens and, and, and stuff like that. And and, and definitely, we, we don't want to introduce uh, these things uh, <laughs> into our cars. <laughs> Absolutely not, and that, that's that's why I keep on flying the flag for human factors or user-centered design specialists because these people are the people who need to be who need to be in on the design of these technologies right from day one. But normally they're not, and it's only it's only when the mistakes are made or the product's been launched that the problems the problems are uh, are discovered, which has been the story of ergonomics since the since the 1930s. One of the things that I have recently found, not that I didn't know it was there, but I, you know, I recently tried it and that worked surprisingly well. That's, that's one of the best things I've seen in, in VR uh, so far. And that was table tennis. <laughs> yes. There's the, I, apparently there's a few of them, but the one I've tried is, uh, it's called the uh, Racket uh, Fury. And uh, I, I played a lot of table tennis in school when I was a kid. And recently I was on a vacation where we played a little bit of table tennis and I kind of, you know, you know, got interested again. And then I tried that VR thing and it's really good. It's crazy good. It's so, and I didn't believe it. And I remember back in the, in the Wii days, you know, Nintendo Wii, you know, everybody was playing bowling and there was a little bit of tennis. That was a lot of fun, but now yeah. it really feels, you know, I, I feel like I physically have to improve my game to to beat you know I'm, I'm standing there down in my knees totally as if i was uh, in front of a real table tennis uh, table uh, have you tried it no i haven't no uh, i remember trying i remember trying a, a really bad tennis game back in the, the in the 1990s which was brought out by vpl as part of their um their iphone data club and people wanted to get little pizza electric um vibrating transducers into the glove you could feel the ball in much the same way as you would feel you know, again that's a great great idea for haptics because it's very basic haptics so when you hit when you hit the table tennis ball you just need confirmation that you've made contact yeah. and, and yeah so we're not expecting anything complex and and i've always found that the simpler it is in vr the more effective it is in 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 developing skills in developing knowledge and so on so what you've just said makes complete sense yeah, that's actually the only thing that's missing is that little nook you get when the ball hits the bat, but but the reflexes and the spins and the serves, you know, I, you know, my muscle memory could remember a serve from when I was in school. You know, I just, okay, yeah. I just did it. You know what? And I was like, whoa, what was that? I, I totally forgot I could do that, but my body just did it, and that kind of is a sign that okay, now I'm in an environment that my body finds truly believable and and can remember and 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 things like that, and that was just amazing. But but again, there's two things: a good thing and a bad thing. First, the good thing is you don't have to bend down to pick up the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, perfect. And the, perfect. the one thing missing is that little that little nook. When you when the but I think because if you if you compare it to tennis where where there's much more power and and much more impact with the ball on on the racket, I think the the table tennis it's such a little feeling that you yeah. don't really miss it. So if you could just have a little bit of like a little 
when it hit back. But I think the lag would be too great if you started to do that with the current, like these like engine rotating engines or whatever it is that that the that well, the handle have. You probably wouldn't need that much. I mean, again, you, you even even a basic, very sharp rumble on a on a rumble stick, or a pe or again a, a, some kind of vibrating transducer that gave you that clip. Um, that that to me would be enough. And I'm surprised they haven't done this because a, a number of the a number of the hand controllers actually come with this now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we found again many years ago when we were experimenting with um, pizza electric sensors, transducers, and a glove. That you could just about reach out and turn a virtual knob. So, you, for example, you could increase the frequency as the knob was turning clockwise, and obviously the, the the converse was true. But then, when when it clicked, you could do that click effect, and it, that simple tactile cue, and that's what it is. It's a cue. It's not a sense, or it's it's nothing complex. That was all you needed to bring in that little bit of believability, as you've you've been describing. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, I usually have a question that I answer everybody is like, what the uh, what are you most excited about or what you're most looking forward to? But but you, I would love to ask. You know, being in this game for for so long, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what are the some of the most amazing things you have seen in your journey? Yeah, well, that's yes. No, I'm going to have to be very selective here, otherwise you're going to have to cut me off. I think because there have been there have been some really amazing experiences. Um, I, it's actually not, it's not a question I would necessarily answer te with with technology. Um, you know, you know it, it, one of my colleagues many years ago developed a, a, a haptic feedback system, which was basically using a. Uh, a medical instrument and it looked Heath Robinson. It, I mean, it was literally just a, a collection of wires and spindles and, 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 uh, and joints and things. Um, but I remember when he, when he, and he was an MSc student and he, he asked me to, 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 to follow the inside of a rubber box. So I was holding this instrument, excuse me, and following around and sure enough, I could, I could trace this rubber box. And then, unbeknown to me, he pressed a key on the keyboard, which started the box pulsating, and I literally jumped. Um, and that that was a that, that that was amazing technological experience. But I think most of the best experiences my team and I have are when we see ordinary people respond to the technology. So we do a lot of work with school kids, both mainstream schools, special needs schools, and just watching the kids. Um, realize that there's more to virtual reality than just just computer games i mean they they realize that they, they, they can see the history they can explore anatomy they can do visits to different parts of the world and you know, and all of a sudden this this world opens out and just watching some of their responses that's real big feedback to me but the number one the number one mega experience that i've ever felt in virtual reality is when we took one of our virtual reality demonstrations into an in, in intensive care unit in the west of the UK. Um, and what this what this was, it was a recreation of an actual part of the West Country, a place called Wembley Bay. And we could link this, and it wasn't headset based, it was screen based, uh, because we didn't want to put headsets on patients in intensive care for a number of a number of possibly obvious reasons. Yeah. So this was linked up to one of those those little cycles. 
it's, it's a medical cycle. You can either use them for your legs or you use them with your hands for rehabilitation after you've been in, after you've been, uh, you've had major surgery. And this guy called Nick, he'd had major abdominal surgery, a really major abdominal surgery. And he was very, very poorly, but he still got out of his bed and he still sat in this, this, this system that we, we pulled together. And he was pedaling around the, the West Coast, the coastal path. And I look on his face and I look on his wife's face and she was photographing him with her mobile phone, like, like it was going out of fashion. And, it, and I couldn't understand why he was so excited. He was so poorly, but so excited. And then on, on the wall of his ward, there was a picture. And there was a picture of him sitting in a recumbent cycle, recumbent tricycle on a beach. We, we had no idea, which is exactly what we were asking him to do in the virtual reality world. And as his wife said, and sadly, about two weeks later, he passed away. But his wife said, what you in the virtual reality did really elevated that man's life at the end of his life. Now, feedback like that, getting photographs of history from people who come to our presentations that can then help us to improve our virtual reality contributions, from my point of view, is much greater reward than being paid for doing VR projects. We, we, don't, we don't get paid that often. A lot of, a lot of our projects are labors of love, but, but seeing people's reactions, um, you know, being able to do things they, they wouldn't be able to other, be, be able to do. You mentioned David Attenborough. We've got, we've got a, 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 mountain, uh, a mountain scene um, on the quest where David Attenborough guides you through a, uh, guides you through a, a 50 minute period of meditation and seeing the response of school teachers, consultants, nurses, ambulance drivers when they use this is worth it's worth its weight in gold so yeah plenty of technology over the last 30 however it was 35 years plenty of different technologies nothing significantly has changed that much which made me go wow this is this is it we're there but people's reactions to what virtual reality can do absolutely huge interesting uh so just so make sure. So there was this guy on the cycle. He was watching a screen that that kind of remind him of you know what he used to do. Was it? I'm I'm, curious, I'm just curious. You know, is it is it like was it like one screen or did he have like a three screen setup or what was the single screen? And okay. and, and, and it, it it's you know I I I I have arguments all the time because people there are the purists out there who think you're not in you're not you can't be immersed. You're not in virtual reality unless you wear a headset. Well, that's complete nonsense. As we've shown time and time again over the years, it's the content. It's the content that engages you. It's the content that draws you in. And it's the content that makes you oblivious of what's going on around you in the real world. So all this guy had was a single large screen and a representation of an actual place in the West Country. Uh, he could hear, the, he could hear the, the sound of the ocean. He could hear the sound of the birds, the wind. Um, and what he had to do was uh, he, he did the initial trial around the, the route. And then the following day, what he had to do was compete with his yesterday's performance. So this faint avatar appeared, which was him yesterday, and he had to beat him yesterday to improve, to, to, to improve his rehabilitation. Uh, but yeah, single screen, no headset, single screen. Yeah, that sounds... and, and uh... I can't remember what they call it, like a ghost ghosting or something. You know, when you when you have this, 
I remember back in the PlayStation One wipeout days. I think they had the same thing with you, where you follow yourself, and that is probably again. That sounds like a super good idea in terms of you know uh, rehab rehabilitation and things like that because a lot of the problems there I can imagine is that you don't really want to compare yourself to others comparison syndrome but you want to compare yourself to where you were yesterday so no matter where people are in their uh, progress you know they can always progress a little bit and a little bit over time makes a huge difference so that that sounds uh, that sounds great and I know I also I've heard you know it's not you know I'm more like you know I have my nose at at gaming and, and things like that but I hear, hear more and more use cases in like health uh, industry of of we of VR that yeah. that are very current and are are already creating uh, great results. So so I'm kind of thinking like if you had from your experience, somebody is considering this whole VR thing, and you know we have this noise of these all these gadgets that we agree that okay they're not really going to do the trick. So if somebody wants to make something that works for other people, knowing what you know, what 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 would you be your advice in terms of the directions they should look in? And what, you know, is there some key principles, you know, consider this, that, and the other thing or something like that? Yeah, there are. And I, and I, I don't know if you can hear this background noise. I think it's this, 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 giant, this giant grass cutter is just about that size. So it, it's I okay. Know. I, I can't hear it. You can't. Oh, that's good. It's, it's, I certainly can. I can hear and, a little bit, but it's not disturbing. Good. The, yes, we've been developing a process, uh, again, human-centered design. Thank you to Don Norman, of course. But there is also, um, we also work to an international standard. And this, this standard is, it's expensive, but it's very thin. It's very readable. And it's, it's in ISO 9241 part 210 and that sounds a little bit academic but that standard guides you through the path of developing interactive technology but making sure you take the humans humans needs capabilities etc in mind all the way through and it takes you on an iterative cycle we've been using that for for many years now and it works and it works very well um i think in terms of if, if the one thing, the, one of the other things that I see online that occasionally makes me angry is that people make a really, really big deal about a healthcare product that they've made. When I know that if you've got basic skills in something like Unreal or Unity, and particularly Unity, you can go online and download some incredibly cost-effective assets. So, for example, augmented or virtual anatomy. Yeah, that's not a problem. There are some great 3D models out there. Some of them are animated, and you know, it, 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 they, go, they, go, they go seamlessly into Unity. Um, you know, my, my, son, my son is, is actually doing some work on this at the moment. Things like putting together virtual environments uh, that people can explore, be it on the moon, Mars, somewhere in Earth, going into a volcano. Um, great example from healthcare. The mountain scene that my student put together for which David Attenborough, God bless him, did the narration. All of those assets were purchased either from www.turbosquid.com or from the Unity Asset Store. During the nighttime part of that, there is uh, the Northern Lights appear over the mountains. Well, we spent 
we bought those Northern Lights for about $40. I think the price of the Northern Lights has now dropped. The asset store for Unity, if you go on there and you've got, you've got the basic knowledge of Unity, you can pull together all kinds of demos without having to pay cash star startups enormous amounts of money to build this thing for you. The, the, the toolkits, I mean, in, in the 1990s, we were doing things on a quarter of a million pound supercomputer with headsets that cost £7,000 and a glove that cost £13,000. Today, virtual reality is so accessible uh, and, and in most cases, pretty much user-friendly to get grips with. So, and seeing what my students do, come to me in June, produce something amazing in October, you know, that period of time, they've been teaching themselves Unity and pulling together all this experience and designing in 3D, making it real time, putting it onto headset, etc. Uh, that speaks for itself, and I think that's so. As long as you, as long as you buy or acquire the assets you're going to put into your virtual world, based on your knowledge of the human's needs and the task that the human needs to do, using that international standard, that's it. That's all you need to do. Yeah, that that sounds like really solid advice uh, right there it is something i've i've discussed with few of my guests you know and you know how to get started um in 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 this and uh you know solve solve problems using vr there are a couple of people in denmark who are doing pretty amazing things uh, but this right there seems like okay that's that's just and i've seen those uh asset libraries uh, i totally agree um i don't know unity yet It feels like it's something. I, huh, okay, I need to <laughs> dip my hands in that. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, okay, I'm just gonna finish off with this. You know, what are you looking most forward to? If you asked me that in 2019, I would have said a quiet retirement, but that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, I am looking forward to. And this sounds really, really boring, but but more of the same. We, as I say, we get a kick in 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 doing demos. Most of them are unpaid, sadly, but that's that's the way it is. Uh, and actually delivering them to end users to make a difference. Uh, we're working on one project at the moment with a preserved steam railway in the Midlands, where we're going to hopefully my youngest son, who has um, got himself up to speed in Unity, really, really quickly. And just he's, he's living proof that it can be done. So we're going to be producing a headset-based steam train trip for um, people with early onset dementia uh, in care homes, many of whom we understand are, are ex-railway workers. Uh, uh, we're going to be we're going to be putting a 3D scanner onto a robot and putting it into um, a, a very very old small tunnel in one of the um, leap on Dartmoor, which is one of the man-made the, the man um, uh, channels of water that used to bring water from the Dartmoor down to Plymouth, built by Sir Francis, uh, Sir Francis Drake. Uh, and and it's, it's more of the same. So it's putting together uh, just demonstrations that, again, help educate people. I'm working with, a, I'm working with a, 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 another company called uh, Kabuni as an advisor. And we're looking into Uh, what it means to deliver a safe metaverse for the future education of children. And we're currently writing up, we're currently drawing up a design for a, a global experiment. Uh, Switzerland, UK, 
US, um, yeah, uh, India possibly, South Africa. Uh, and so we're looking at, again, rather than going out there and saying, we've done everything, this, this, meta, this metaverse or this miniverse or whatever we're gonna call it, uh, really works. We want, we want to prove it. We want to get out there and do an experiment, with, not just with the kids, but with the teachers as well. That's quite, that's, that's gonna be quite exciting. Um, and I'm working with a, a small Korean company who are currently putting together a, a, a terraforming Mars metaverse, um, which because of my interest in science fiction, and, and you, you probably you probably see my interest in science fiction on LinkedIn quite regularly. Uh, I like that idea. Um, so I'm working with them in the hope that they can produce a, uh, a, nice, a nice metaverse retirement home overlooking one of the major craters um, but with this, where the sun rises in the morning. Yeah. So that, that's, that's my next, next two years covered, I think. Oh, that sounds great. great. Yeah, it sounds super interesting. Uh, I, it reminds me very much about what I've always said, you know, probably since the 80s, that when I, when I grow old, you can just, you know, plug me in and I'll be like a little Japanese schoolgirl uh, fighting dragons, uh, you know, <laughs> in a, and, and that, that leads to a trend that I created a while back from, from elder care to gamer care, you know, uh, when, uh, and, 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 it, and it seems like what you're saying is like, okay, we're actually kind of moving in that direction. Mm. Because my grandmother, and I just saw her this weekend, she's, uh, was 90, 94 or something, and she just moved into an elder home. And I can totally imagine, you know, you could be with your grandkids. You know, yeah. you could, you can, you can, uh, you know, interact with whatever they are doing. Uh, and and she can't hear anything, so so physically we can't, they, they can't, can't communicate because she can't hear what we are saying unless we write. But the kids, you know, they can't write. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that you know if. Yeah, there's, there's a whole world there with just grandparents being able to interact with the grandparents in in some kind of uh, metaverse because they can say something and then it can be translated onto text to the old person. Or exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and then other effects. I mean, for example, we haven't even touched on smell, but enhancing that experience with smell, enhancing that experience with maybe skull vibration, and to, to simulate the wind going through there. It's wide open. It's wide open for people to make sensible use of the technologies that, that, that face us to make, make the lives of ordinary people much more, much more worthwhile. Sensible use. Yeah, I like that. Thank you very much. It has been a, a super interesting conversation. I hope we can uh, catch up. Uh, maybe like six months out or something like that. And I can hear more about, you know, uh, how it has been going on the stuff that you are, that you are working on. Uh, I'm going to share, uh, you know, as we talked about it before we started recording, uh, I'm going to give you a, a place to share whatever uh, you like. Uh, so uh, everything, especially, you know, that standard a link to that would be nice uh, so that people can find that in, in the show notes and anything else you want. Uh, so we're not going to mention a lot of it now. I just, uh, encourage people to check out the, the show notes because uh, anything you drop will be in there and also are you cool with people contacting you uh, if they have questions and stuff like that then we'll put you of course yeah yeah uh, yes I, I welcome that if we can if we can help people move forward or advise them on packages yeah please do that would be my pleasure
Great. Thank you very much, Bob. Yes, but it's been a real, real pleasure. Thanks, thanks for the question. Fantastic. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Bob. I thought it was super interesting to hear his experiences of how little it actually requires to create an immersive experience in virtual reality. Yes, we can dream about this like Ready Player One scenario where we are totally immersed in a world, but the use cases that are already here doesn't really need that. You know, we can have these like really great, really profound experiences with virtual reality and some a few other things and and the way it's designed and created. And we don't really need all those gadgets. I think that was kind of an eye-opener for me because, as you heard in the episode, I thought it was like, no, that's not going to happen. VR is not really going to happen because all the, you know, until we, we can plug our brains directly in because we don't want to spend a lot of time putting on gadgets just to play a casual game. That's maybe something you will do once in a while. You know, I can imagine... Uh, you know, this whole Polderabend scenario, you know, where, where you go out for an event uh, with some friends and, and then maybe you suit up for this like more immersive experience, but I don't think it's going to be something you're going to want to do in a regular daily basis. You know, the the, the price in, in time is just too big uh, compared to the rewards of being in VR. But it turns out that you don't need that. So that was like super cool. And, 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 and to be honest, it really changed my view on VR. So I'm going to pursue that a little more in the future. And I already know that I have an interview coming up where I actually go on the road and try some stuff and have a super immersive experience with very little gear. So that's going to be interesting. Thank you very much for listening and do not forget to check out the show notes where Bob has shared a ton of valuable links, both to YouTube videos with case studies of what he mentioned, guides and a whole lot of other stuff. So don't, seriously, I mean it, there's a gold there. So don't forget to check it out. If it's not in your podcast app for some reason, then you can find it in the show notes at metaversecast.fm So, thank you for listening and see you next time.